When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today's story, Operation Mincemeat, the brilliant World War II plan that deceived the Nazis in Sicily. This is the story of the British intelligence plan that duped Hitler into believing the Allies were going to invade Greece rather than Sicily in 1943. A bold plan which succeeded mightily allowing the Allies to capture Sicily and move northward through Italy on their way to the heart of Germany's power. Keep in mind that as Operation Torch was launched in North Africa, planning was underway for the next move. Once North Africa was secured, the Allies would have much easier access to the soft underbelly of Europe, as Churchill put it. The big problem for the Allies was Sicily. Sicily was the first option, Control of Sicily would open the Mediterranean Sea to Allied shipping and allow the invasion of continental Europe through Italy. The second option was to go into Greece and the Balkans to trap the German forces between the British and American invaders and the Soviets. At the Casablanca Conference in January of 1943, Allied planners agreed on the selection of Sicily, codenamed Operation Husky and decided to undertake the invasion no later than July of that year. There was concern among the Allied planners that Sicily was an obvious choice. Churchill is reputed to have said, Everyone but a bloody fool would know that it's Sicily, and that the build-up of resources for the invasion would be detected. It was going to be extremely costly to invade there, because it was so well defended by the Germans. But to any reasoning military mind, It couldn't be skipped or avoided, and the Germans knew this as well as the Allies. But, in capitals, if there was a way that the Germans could be convinced that Sicily was not the first invasion target, that could be a huge plus. Operation Mincemeat was born to achieve this goal. It was the plan which resulted in the famous three-word coded message which was relayed to Churchill upon its successful completion mincemeat swallowed whole. The ruse, which involved the strategic placing of a corpse outfitted as a British intelligence agent whose body would wash up on a beach in Spain, complete with top-secret papers which, when decoded, would reveal an Allied plan to invade Greece and Sardinia, was designed to fool the Nazis into pulling at least some of their defenses from the real target, Sicily. A ruse that needed to work, and if it worked, would succeed in giving Allied armies under Montgomery and Patton an even chance at gaining a foothold in Sicily, with much less casualties than would have been otherwise. The plan to use a corpse equipped with documents was not new, and many intelligence people came up with varying plans, but the plan, called the Trout Memo, that became Operation Mincemeat, was given much of its uniqueness by British Rear Admiral John Godfrey and his then personal assistant, Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming, the man who would later author the famous James Bond novels, the creator of James Bond. Here are the hows and whys of the manner in which the Trout Memo and later Operation Mincemeat were conceived. On September 29, 1939, soon after the start of the Second World War, Rear Admiral John Godfrey, the Director of Naval Intelligence, circulated the Trout Memo which was a paper loaded with ideas of potential ruses entitled in a manner that compared the deception of an enemy in wartime to fly fishing. The Trout Memo, T-R-O-U-T. 
That was rather appropriate, as fly fishing requires stealth and skill and the right choice of bait. In this case, an artificially made insect intended to draw the attention of a wary fish, all for the purpose of getting the fish to strike. So the trout memo was a good name for that plan. The historian Ben McIntyre observed that although the paper was published under Godfrey's name, it bore all the hallmarks of Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming, Godfrey's personal assistant. The memo contained a number of schemes to be considered for use against the Axis powers to lure U-boats and German surface ships towards minefields. Number 28 on that list was titled, A Suggestion, Not a Very Nice One. It was an idea to plant misleading papers on a corpse that would be found by the enemy. That idea would eventually bear fruit in 1943. The following suggestion was used in a book by Basil Thompson, who spent years with British intelligence and who was the man responsible for catching the famous spy Matahari. His idea? A corpse dressed as an airman, with dispatches in his pockets, could be dropped on the coast, supposedly from a parachute that had failed. He wrote, I understand there is no difficulty in obtaining corpses at the naval hospital, but, of course, it would have to be a fresh one. The deliberate planting of fake documents to be found by the enemy was not new. Known as the Haversack Ruse, it had been practiced by the British and others in the First and Second World Wars. For instance, in August of 1942, before the Battle of Alam el Haffa, a corpse was placed in a blown-up scout car in a minefield facing the German 90th Light Division. On the corpse was a map purportedly showing the locations of British minefields. The Germans used the map, and their tanks were routed to areas of soft sand where they bogged down. That ruse worked. In September of 1942, an aircraft flying from Britain to Gibraltar crashed off Cadiz. All aboard were killed, including Paymaster Lieutenant James Haddon Turner, a courier carrying top-secret documents, and a French agent. Turner's documents included a letter from General Mark Clark, the American deputy commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, to General Noel Mason McFarlane, British Governor and Commander-in-Chief of Gibraltar, informing him that General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, would arrive in Gibraltar on the eve of Operation Torch's target date of November 4th. Operation Torch was the planned Allied invasion of North Africa. Germany had invaded North Africa for its oil resources early in World War II. Turner's body washed up on the beach near Tarifa, and was recovered by the Spanish authorities. When the body was returned to the British, the letter was still on it, and technicians determined that the letter had not been opened. Other Allied intelligence sources established that the notebook carried by the French agent had been copied by the Germans, but they dismissed it as being disinformation. To British planners, it showed that some material that was obtained by the Spanish was being passed to the Germans. A month after the Turner crash, the British intelligence officer, Charles Chomandelli, outlined his own variation of the Trout Memo plan, codenamed Trojan Horse, after the Achean deception from the Trojan War. His plan was, A body is obtained from one of the London hospitals. The lungs are filled with water, and documents are disposed in an inside pocket. The body is then dropped by a coastal command aircraft. On being found, the supposition in the enemy's mind may well be that one of our aircraft has either been shot or forced down, and that this is one of their passengers. Coleman Deli was a flight lieutenant in the Royal Air Force, RAF, who had been seconded to MI5, Britain's domestic counterintelligence and security service. He had been appointed as the secretary of the 20 Committee, a small inter-service, interdepartmental intelligence team in charge of double agents. In November 1942, the 20 Committee turned down Colmandelli's plan as being unworkable, but thought there may have been some potential in the idea. As there was a naval connection to the plan, John Masterman, the chairman of the committee, assigned Ewan Montague, the naval representative, to work with Colmandelli to develop the plan further. Montague, a peacetime lawyer and King's counsel who had volunteered at the outbreak of the war, worked under Godfrey at the Naval Intelligence Division, where he ran NID 17M, 
the sub-branch which handled counterintelligence work. Godfrey had also appointed Montague to oversee all naval deception involving double agents. As part of his duties, Montague had been briefed on the need for deception operations to aid the Allied war aims in a forthcoming invasion operation in the Mediterranean. Montague would write a book about it in 1953, which I have in my collection. It's called The Man Who Never Was, The Remarkable Story of Operation Mincemeat. And it's a good book, but it was too soon after the war, and for that reason he was prevented at that time from naming names for reasons of security to all those involved. Montague does a great job revealing the thought processes involved in the planning, and I'll try to include some of those ideas as we go forward. At one point he writes, As we were puzzling over this problem, the penny suddenly dropped, and G's fantastic idea, G no doubt standing for Admiral Godfrey, and G's fantastic idea of some time before justified itself. Why, I said, shouldn't we get a body, disguise it as a staff officer, and give him really high-level paper, which will show clearly that we are going to attack somewhere else? We won't have to drop him on land, as the aircraft might have come down in the sea on its way round to the Med. He would float ashore with his papers, either in France or in Spain. It won't matter which. Probably Spain would be best, as the Germans wouldn't have much chance to examine the body there, as if they'd got it into their own hands. Well, it's certain they will get the documents, or at least copies of them. And so the idea was born. We discussed its potentialities. We would have to check on a number of points. And so they did. Like, what sort of condition would a body be in after an airplane crash in the sea? What were the usual causes of death in these cases? What would a post-mortem reveal? Could they get a suitable body? And there were many other questions. One thing that held them back was the innate respect for the sanctity of the human body, which most of us have. Overcoming that first feeling was the fact that if the plan worked, it would save many more lives, and sooner or later, the body would receive a decent burial as well. Then came the thorny problem of how to approach relations. First, the intelligence team referred to Sir Bernard Spilsbury, possibly the best-known pathologist in the UK, and a man who could be trusted to keep quiet about the project. Spilsbury gave them the right advice. If the body was floating in a May West when it was recovered, they could use the body of a man who had either drowned or died from exposure, or even from shock. So how to find a body, without asking anyone or giving up any hint that they were looking for one? Because the natural response from anyone would be, Why? Why do you need it? The small team was beginning to consider a Burke and Hare style body snatch. For your information, Burke and Hare killed 16 innocent people in 1828 and sold their bodies to support England's medical quest to use fresh bodies, no questions asked, for anatomical research. One of the intelligence team members joked that they were the cast of Pirandello, six officers in search of a corpse. Come along, Igor, and bring your shovel. While the intelligence team planned and searched, and while Operation Torch found itself bogged down in a very costly invasion of North Africa, Adolf Hitler was concerned about a Balkan invasion, as the area had been the source of raw materials for the German war industry, including copper, bauxite, chrome, and most importantly, oil. Any one of you can name at least six of the Balkan countries is a genuinely smart person. I'll name just a few here. Albania, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Bulgaria, Croatia, Kosovo, Montenegro, parts of Greece and Turkey, and others make up the Balkans. The Allies knew of Hitler's fears, and so they launched Operation Barclay, a deception operation to play upon his concerns and to mislead the Germans into thinking the Balkans were the objective, diverting resources from Sicily. The deception reinforced German strategic thinking about the likely British target. To suggest the eastern Mediterranean was the target, the Allies set up a headquarters in Cairo, Egypt, for a fictional formation, the 12th Army, consisting of 12 divisions. Military maneuvers were conducted in Syria, with numbers inflated by dummy tanks and armored vehicles to deceive observers. There have been books and movies portraying this ghost army, 
Greek interpreters were recruited, and the Allies stockpiled Greek maps and currency. False communications about troop movements were generated from the 12th Army headquarters, while the Allied command post in Tunis, which was to be the headquarters of the Sicily invasion, reduced radio traffic by using landlines whenever possible. It's good to understand that while the Allies were fighting an incredibly difficult war over months and years, and on two fronts, the Allied intelligence was not sitting on its hands, as many people might have expected at the time. Here you have one deception operation, all for the purpose of supporting a second deception, and the Nazis were not known to be easily fooled. Also keep in mind that the Nazis had spies in top positions in all Allied governments. It was and is an ugly fact of life that there are plenty of men and women in war and peace who will do anything for money, regardless of who or what it hurts, including their own country. We'll return to the findings of the British intelligence team right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to Operation Mincemeat. The team received more information from pathologist Spilsbury, information which brought them closer to a decision. Spilsbury informed them that those who died in an air crash often did so from shock and not drowning. The lungs would not necessarily be filled with water. He added that Spaniards, as Roman Catholics, were averse to post-mortems and did not hold them unless the cause of death was of great importance. Spilsbury advised that a person could have suffered one of the many different causes of death which could be misconstrued in an autopsy. Montague later wrote, If a post-mortem examination was made by someone who had formed the preconceived idea that the death was probably due to drowning, there was little likelihood that the difference between this liquid in lungs that had started to decompose and seawater would even be noticed. This meant that not only would they have a better degree of success than they previously thought, but that there would be a larger number of corpses potentially available for selection when the time came. When Montague discussed the possibility of obtaining a corpse with Bentley Purchase, the coroner for the Northern District of London, he was told there would be practical and legal difficulties. I should think bodies are the only commodities not in short supply at the moment, but even with bodies all over the place, each one has to be accounted for, he said. Purchase promised to look out for a body that was suitable, with no relatives who would claim the corpse for burial. On January 28, 1943, Purchase contacted Montague with the news he had located a suitable body, believed today to be that of Glindrear Michael, a tramp who died from eating rat poison that contained phosphorus. Purchase informed Montague and his partner, Colmandelli, that the small amount of poison in the system would not be identified in a body that was supposed to have been floating in the sea for several days. When Montague commented that the ulcer-nourished corpse did not look like a fit field officer, Purchase informed him that he does not have to look like an officer, only a staff officer, more used to office work. Purchase agreed to keep the body in the mortuary refrigerator at a temperature of 4 degrees centigrade, 39 degrees Fahrenheit, any colder and the flesh would freeze, which would be obvious after the body defrosted. He warned Montague and Colmandelli that the body had to be used within three months, after which it would have decomposed past the point of usefulness. Montague refused to identify the individual and only described him as a bit of a ne'er-do-well, and later revealed that the only worthwhile thing that he ever did, he did after his death. In 1996, Roger Morgan, an amateur historian from London, uncovered evidence in the public record office that the identity of the corpse was indeed Michael. Montague selected the code name Mincemeat from a list of centrally held available possibilities. Montague writes in his book, I went to see what names had been allocated for admiralty use, and there I found that the word Mincemeat had just been restored after employment in a successful operation some time before. My sense of humor having by this time become somewhat macabre, the word seemed to be a good omen, and Operation Mincemeat it became. On February 4, 1943, Montague and Cole filed their plan for the operation with the 20 Committee. It was a reworking of Cole Trojan Horse Plan, 
The mincemeat plan was to place documents on the corpse and then float it off the coast of Spain, whose nominally neutral government was known to cooperate with the Abwehr, the German military intelligence organization. The plan was passed by the committee, who passed it up the chain of command to the senior Allied strategist. Montague and Colmandelli were ordered to continue with their preparations for the operation. The two began to create a legend, a fictitious background and character for the body. The name and rank chosen was Captain Acting Major William Martin of the Royal Marines assigned to Combined Operations Headquarters. The name Martin was selected because there were several men with that name of about that rank in the Royal Marines. As a Royal Marine, Major Martin came under Admiralty authority, and it would be easy to ensure that all official inquiries and messages about his death would be routed to the Naval Intelligence Division. Additionally, Royal Marines would wear battle dress, which was easily obtainable and came in standard sizes. The rank of acting major made him senior enough to be entrusted with sensitive documents, but not so prominent that anyone would expect to know him. To reinforce the impression of Martin being a real person, Montague and Coleman Deli provided corroborative details to be carried on his person, known in espionage circles as wallet or pocket litter. These included a photograph of an invented fiancé named Pam. That image was actually of an MI5 clerk, Gene Leslie. Two love letters from Pam were included in the pocket litter, as was a receipt for a diamond engagement ring costing 53 pounds, 10 shillings, from a Bond Street jewelry shop. Additional personal correspondence was included, consisting of a letter from the fictitious Martin's father, described by McIntyre as pompous and pedantic as only an Edwardian father could be, which included a note from the family solicitor and a message from Lloyd's Bank, demanding payment of an overdraft of 79 pounds, 19 shillings. To ensure that the letters would remain legible after immersion in seawater, Montague asked MI5 scientists to conduct tests on different inks to see which would last longest in the water, and they provided him with a suitable list of popular and available ink brands. Other items of pocket litter placed on Martin included a book of stamps, a silver cross, and a St. Christopher's medallion, cigarettes, matches, a pencil stub, keys, and a receipt from Gives for a new shirt. To provide a date that Martin had been in London, ticket stubs from a London theater and a bill for four nights lodging at the Naval and Military Club were added. Along with the other items placed on him, an itinerary of his activity in London could be constructed from the 18th to the 24th of April. Attempts were made to photograph the corpse for the naval identity card Martin would have to carry, but the results were unsatisfactory, and it was obvious that the images were of a cadaver. Montague and Colmandelli conducted a search for people who resembled the corpse, finding Captain Ronnie Reed of MI5. Reed agreed to be photographed for the identity card, wearing a Royal Marine uniform. As the three cards and passes needed to look not too new for a long-serving officer, they were issued as recent replacements for lost originals. Montague spent the next few weeks rubbing all three cards on his trousers to provide a used sheen to them. To provide a used look to the uniform, it was worn by Colmandelli, who was about the same build. The only non-issue part to the uniform was the underwear, which was in short supply in war ration Britain, so a pair of good quality woolen underwear, owned by the late Herbert Fisher, the warden of New College Oxford, was used. Montague outlined three criteria for the document that contained the details of the falsified plans to land in the Balkans. He said that the target should be casually but clearly identified, that it should name Sicily and another location as cover, and that it should be in an unofficial correspondence that would not normally be sent by diplomatic courier or encoded signal. The main document was a personal letter from Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Nye, the Vice Chief of the Imperial General Staff, who had a deep knowledge of ongoing military operations, to General Sir Harold Alexander, commander of the Anglo-American 18th Army Group in Algeria and Tunisia under General Eisenhower. After several attempts at drafting the document did not generate something that was considered natural, it was suggested that Nye should draw up the letter himself to cover the required points. The letter covered several purportedly sensitive subjects, 
such as the unwanted award of Purple Heart medals by U.S. forces to British servicemen serving with them, and the appointment of a new commander of the Brigade of Guards. Montague thought the result was quite brilliant. The key part of the letter stated that, We have recent information that the Bosch, meaning the Germans, have been reinforcing and strengthening their defenses in Greece and Crete. Chief of the Imperial General Staff felt that our forces for the assault were insufficient. It was agreed by the Chiefs of Staff that the 5th Division should be reinforced by one brigade group for the assault on the beach south of Cape Araxos, and that a similar reinforcement should be made for the 56th Division at Kalamata. I'll simplify it. The Germans need to be convinced that Sir Henry Wilson's army under Montgomery was not going to take part in General Eisenhower's operations. Instead, it would be a two-pronged sweep around Sicily into Greece, offering rapid advance up to the Balkans. This would cause the Germans, if they took the bait, to pull both land and water assets off Sicily. The letter went on to identify Sicily and Corsica as cover targets for the assaults, along with justifications for their selection. There was also a letter of introduction for Martin from his putative commanding officer, Vice Admiral Lord Louis Montbatten, the Chief of Combined Operations, to Admiral of the Fleet, Sir Andrew Cunningham, the Commander-in-Chief Mediterranean Fleet and Allied Naval Commander in the Mediterranean. Martin was referred to in the letter as an amphibious warfare expert on loan until the assault is over. The document included a clumsy joke about sardines, which Montague inserted in the hope that the Germans would see it as a reference to the planned invasion of Sardinia. A single black eyelash was placed within the letter to check if the Germans or Spanish had opened it. Montague considered that there would be a possible Roman Catholic prejudice against tampering with corpses, which could miss the documents stored in the corpses' pockets, so they added them to an official briefcase that would not be overlooked. To justify carrying documents in a briefcase, Major Martin was given two proof copies of the, of the official pamphlet on combined operations written by the author Hilary Saunders, then on Montbatten's staff, and a letter from Montbatten to Eisenhower, asking him to write a brief forward for the pamphlet's U.S. edition. The planning team first thought of having the handle clutched in the corpse's hand, held in place by rigor mortis, but the rigor would probably wear off, and the briefcase would drift away. They therefore equipped Martin with a leather-covered chain, such as was used by bank and jewelry couriers to secure their cases against snatching. The chain unobtrusively runs down a sleeve to the case, to Montague, it seemed unlikely that the major would keep the bag secured to his wrist during the long flight from Britain, so the chain was looped around the belt of his trench coat. Montague and Colmondelli gave consideration to the location of the corpse's delivery. It had long been assumed by the pair that the western coast of Spain would be the ideal location. Early in the planning, they investigated the possibility of Portuguese and French coasts but rejected those in favor of Huelva on the coast of southern Spain. After advice was taken from the hydrographer of the Navy, regarding the tides and currents best suited to ensure the body landed where it was wanted. Montague later outlined that the choice of Huelva was also made because there was a very active German agent who had excellent contacts with certain Spaniards, both officials and others. The agent, Adolf Klaus, a member of the Abwehr, was the son of a German consul and operated under the cover of an agriculture technician. He was an efficient and effective operative. Huelva was also chosen because the British vice-consul in the city, Francis Hesselton, was a reliable and helpful man who could be relied upon, according to Montague. Montague gives us an inside look at the spy-versus-spy aspects to creating the right documents in his book, Operation Mincemeat. He writes... You are a British intelligence officer. You have an opposite number in the enemy intelligence, as in the last war, in Berlin, and above him is the German operational command. What you, a Breton with a British background, think can be deduced from a document does not matter. It is what your opposite number, with his German knowledge and background, will think that matters. What construction he will put on the document... Therefore, if you want him to think such and such a thing, you must give him something that will make him, and not you, think it. 
"'but he will be suspicious and want confirmation. "'You must think out what inquiries he will make, "'not what inquiries you will make, "'and give him the answers to those inquiries "'so as to satisfy him. "'In other words, you must remember "'that a German does not think as an Englishman does, "'and you must put yourself into his mind, "'and think of the operational staff to whom he reports, "'if you are to succeed.' The body was supposed to be the victim of an airplane crash, and it was decided that to try to simulate the accident at sea using flares and other devices would be too risky and open to discovery. After seaplanes and surface ships were dismissed as being problematic, a submarine was chosen as the method of delivering the corpse to the region. To transport the body by submarine, it needed to be contained within the body of the boat as any externally mounted container would have to be built with a skin so thick it would alter the level of the water line. The canister needed to remain airtight and keep the corpse as fresh as possible throughout its journey. Spilsbury provided the medical requirements, and Colmandelli contacted Charles Fraser Smith of the Ministry of Supply to produce the container, which was labeled, Handle with Care, Optical Instruments. One of the biggest fears Montague and his team had was that once the proposal went up to the chiefs of staff, every chief involved who felt himself an expert would have a different idea of what to do. If any of you have ever been involved in advertising and put together a creative project, let's say a television commercial, you pray that it only reaches one decision maker and that he or she doesn't share it with his spouse or co-workers because they will all feel obliged to give their two cents worth, and they will usually want changes. Although they are all intelligent people, they are not advertising professionals, and they will offer advice which defies all reason. Please note that this is an old-school observation. I am convinced that today's advertising agencies have for the most part lost all touch with reality. With regard to the outcome of our story, Montague and team received both types of input— some that stalled the process, that others that greatly helped the process. Also included in the process, after they had found a body, was the effort to find a body double, so that an identity card could be created. The search began by trying to take lifelike pictures involving the corpse, efforts which proved to be futile. Then began the search for someone who looked similar, and that failed. Then one day Montague sat in a meeting, and across the table from him sat the perfect double a one-in-a-thousand chance, but there he was, and he agreed to have his picture used. In that way, Captain William Martin, Royal Marines, was created, along with a girlfriend named Pam, and her picture, as previously stated. They gave Captain Martin a purpose for his flight in an intro letter from Admiral Mott Batten, along with personal and official papers. On April 13, 1943, the committee of the chiefs of staff met and agreed that they thought the plan should proceed. The committee informed Colonel John Bevan, the head of London Controlling Section, which controlled the planning and co-coordination of deception operations, that he needed to obtain final approval from Churchill. Two days later, Bevan met with the Prime Minister, who was in bed, wearing a dressing gown and smoking a cigar, in his rooms at the Cabinet War Offices, and explained the plan. He warned Churchill that there were several aspects that could go wrong, including that the Spaniards might pass the corpse back to the British with the papers unread. Churchill replied that, in that case, we shall have to get the body back and give it another swim. Churchill gave his approval to the operation, but delegated the final confirmation to Eisenhower, the overall military commander in the Mediterranean, whose plan to invade Sicily would be affected by that plan. Bevan sent an encrypted telegram to Eisenhower's headquarters in Algeria requesting final confirmation, which was received on April 17th. In the early hours of April 17, 1943, the corpse of Michael was dressed as Martin, although there was one last-minute hitch. The feet had frozen. Purchase, Montague, and Colmandelli could not put the boots on, so an electric heater was located and the feet defrosted enough to put the boots on properly. The pocket litter was placed on the body, and the briefcase attached. The body was placed in the canister, which was filled with 21 pounds of dry ice and sealed up. When the dry ice sublimated, it filled the canister with carbon dioxide and drove out any oxygen, 
thus preserving the body without refrigeration. The canister was placed in the 1937 Fordson van of an MI5 driver, St. John Jock Horsville, who had been a racing champion before the war. Colmondelli and Montague traveled in the back of the van, which drove through the night to Greenock, West Scotland, where the canister was taken on board the submarine HMS Seraph, which was preparing for a deployment to the Mediterranean. The Seraph's commander, Lieutenant Bill Jewell, and crew had previous special operations experience. Namely, they had picked up General Girard on his escape from captivity, and it was they who had put General Mark Clark ashore on the coast of North Africa when he made secret contact with the French, and then taken him off again. Jewell told his men that the canister contained a top-secret meteorological device to be deployed near Spain. On April 19th, Seraph set sail and arrived just off the coast of Huelva on April 29th, after having been bombed twice en route. After spending the day reconnoitering the coastline, at 4.15 a.m. on April 30th, the Seraph surfaced. Jewell had the canister brought up on deck, then sent all his crew below except the officers. They opened the container and lowered the body into the water. Jewell read Psalm 39 and ordered the engines to full astern. The wash from the screws pushed the corpse toward the shore. The canister was reloaded, and the submarine traveled 12 miles out where it surfaced, and the empty container was pushed into the water. As it floated, it was riddled with machine gun fire so that it would sink. Because of the air trapped in the insulation, this effort failed, and the canister was destroyed with plastic explosives. Jewel afterwards sent a message to the Admiralty to say, Mince meat completed, and continued on to Gibraltar. Montague writes, D-Day of Operation Husky came, and the assault went well. Sicily is roughly a triangle, standing on its point, and the Allies landed in the early hours of the morning of July 10th on both sides of this point, and advanced rapidly up the sides of the triangle, as well as across the middle. There were many elements added to the surprise which was achieved, such as the rough weather and the moon period which was chosen. But that surprise did nothing to shake the confidence of our group that we had succeeded with Operation Mincemeat and contributed our bit. There seemed to be little doubt that the Germans had switched the effort that they had put into preparing the defenses of Sicily away from the south where we landed, to the western angle of the triangle. And the northern side, which would have been the danger points if we had made the diversionary assault during an invasion of Sardinia, or an assault after Sardinia, had been captured. The real knowledge of just how successful Operation Mincemeat was only came to be known some moments after VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. The body of Major Martin was found at around 9.30 a.m. on April 30, 1943, by a local fisherman. It was taken to Huelva by Spanish soldiers, where it was handed over to a naval judge. Hazelden, as vice-consul, was officially informed by the Spaniards. He reported back to the Admiralty that the body and briefcase had been found. A series of pre-scripted diplomatic cables were sent between Hazelton and his superiors, which continued for several days. The British knew that these were being intercepted, and although they were encrypted, the Germans had broken the code. The messages played out the story that it was imperative that Hazelton retrieve the briefcase because it was important. At midday on May 1, an autopsy was undertaken on Michael's body. Hazelton was present, and, in order to minimize the possibilities that the two Spanish doctors would discover that the body was a three-month-old corpse, Hazelton asked if, in the heat of the day, and because of the smell of the corpse, the doctors should bring the post-mortem to a close and have lunch. They agreed, and signed a death certificate for Major William Martin for asphyxiation through immersion in the sea. The body was released by the Spanish, and, as Major Martin, was buried in the San Marco section of Nuestra Señora Cemetery in Huelva, with full military honors, on May 2nd. The Spanish Navy retained the briefcase, and, despite pressure from Adolf Klaus and some of his abware agents, neither it nor its contents were handed over to the Germans. On May 5th, the briefcase was passed to the naval headquarters at San Fernando near Cadiz, for forwarding to Madrid. While at San Fernando, the contents were photographed by German sympathizers, but the letters were not opened. Once the briefcase arrived in Madrid, its contents became the focus of attention of Carl Eric Kulenthal, 
one of the most senior abwehr agents in Spain. He asked Admiral William Canaris, the head of the abwehr, to personally intervene and persuade the Spanish to surrender the documents. Acceding to the request, the Spanish removed the still damp paper by tightly winding it around a probe into a cylindrical shape and then pulling it out between the envelope flap, which was still closed by a wax seal, and the envelope body. The letters were dried and photographed, then soaked in salt water for 24 hours before being reinserted into their envelopes without the eyelash that had been planted there. The information was passed to the Germans on May 8th. This was deemed so important by the Abwehr agents in Spain that Kulenthal personally took the documents to Germany. On May 11th, the briefcase, complete with the documents, was returned to Hazelton by the Spanish authorities. He forwarded it to London in the diplomatic bag. On receipt, the documents were forensically examined and the absence of the eyelash noted. Further tests showed that the fibers in the paper had been damaged by folding more than once, which confirmed that the letters had been extracted and read. An additional test was made as the papers, still wet by the time they returned to London, were dried out. The folded paper dried into the rolled form it had when the Spaniards had extracted it from the envelope. To allay any potential German fears that their activities had been discovered, another prearranged encrypted but breakable cable was sent to Hazelton, stating that the envelopes had been examined and that they had not been opened. Hazelton leaked the news to Spaniards, known to be sympathetic to the Germans. Final proof that the Germans had been passed the information from the letters came on May 14th, when a German communication was decrypted by the ultra-source of signals intelligence produced by the Government Code and Cipher School at Blutzley Park. The message, which had been sent two days previously, warned that the invasion was to be in the Balkans, with a feint to Sardinia. A message was sent by Brigadier Leslie Hollis, the secretary to the Chiefs of Staff Committee, to Churchill, then to the United States. It read, Mincemeat Swallowed, Hook, line, and sinker by the right people, and from the best information, they looked like acting on it. Montague continued the deception to reinforce the existence of Major Martin and concluded his details in the published list of British casualties which appeared in the Times on June 4th. By coincidence, also published that day were the names of two other officers who had died when their plane was lost at sea, and opposite the casualty listings was a report that the film star Leslie Howard had been shot down by the Luftwaffe and died in the Bay of Biscay. Both stories gave credence to the Major Martin story. On May 14, 1943, Grand Admiral Karl Donitz met Hitler to discuss Donitz's recent visit to Italy, his meeting with the Italian leader Benito Mussolini, and the progress of the war. The Admiral, referring to the mincemeat documents as the Anglo-Saxon order, recorded, The Fuhrer does not agree with Mussolini, that the most likely invasion point is Sicily. Furthermore, he believes that the discovered Anglo-Saxon order confirms the assumption that the planned attacks will be directed mainly against Sardinia and the Peloponnesus. Hitler informed Mussolini that Greece, Sardinia, and Corsica must be defended at all costs, and that German troops would be best placed to do the job. He ordered that the experienced 1st Panzer Division be transferred from France to Salonica, Greece, the order was intercepted by the Allies on May 21st. By the end of June, German troop strength on Sardinia had been doubled to 10,000, with fighter aircraft also based there as support. German torpedo boats were moved from Sicily to the Greek islands in preparation. Seven German divisions transferred to Greece, raising the number present to eight, and ten were posted to the Balkans, raising the number present there to 18. On July 9th, the Allies invaded Sicily in Operation Husky. Intercepted German signals showed that even four hours after the invasion of Sicily began, 21 aircraft left Sicily to reinforce Sardinia. For a considerable time after the initial invasion, Hitler was still convinced that an attack on the Balkans was imminent, and in late July he sent General Erwin Rommel to Salonika to prepare the defense of the region. By the time the German high command realized the mistake, it was too late to make a difference. On July 25, 1943, as the battle for Sicily went against the Axis forces, the Italian Grand Council of Fascism voted to limit the power of Mussolini and handed control of the Italian armed forces over to King Victor Emmanuel III. The following day, Mussolini met the king 
who dismissed him as prime minister. The former dictator was then imprisoned. A new Italian government took power and began secret negotiations with the Allies. Sicily fell on August 17th, after a force of 65,000 Germans held off 400,000 American and British forces long enough to allow many of the Germans to evacuate to the Italian mainland. The military historian John Latimer observes that the relative ease with which the Allies captured Sicily was not entirely because of mincemeat or the wider deception of Operation Barclay. Latimer identifies other factors, including Hitler's distrust of the Italians, and his unwillingness to risk German troops alongside Italian troops who may have been on the point of a general surrender. The military historian Michael Howard, while describing mincemeat as perhaps the most successful single deception operation of the entire war, considered mincemeat and Barclay to have less impact on the course of the Sicily campaign than Hitler's congenital obsession with the Balkans. McIntyre writes that the exact impact of mincemeat is impossible to calculate, Although the British had expected 10,000 killed or wounded in the first week of fighting, only a seventh of that number became casualties. The Navy expected 300 ships would be sunk in the action, but they only lost 12. The predicted 90-day campaign was over in 38 days. Montague was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire in 1944 for his part in Operation Mincemeat, for masterminding the plan. The British security services decided that the best response was to publish the story of mincemeat. Over the course of a weekend, Montague wrote The Man Who Never Was in 1953, which sold two million copies and formed the basis for a 1956 film. The security services, as we mentioned up top, did not give Montague complete freedom to reveal operational details, and he was careful not to mention the role played by Signal's intelligence to confirm that the operation had been successful. He was also careful to obscure the idea of an organized program of strategic deception, with mincemeat being presented as a wild, one-off caper. In 1977, Montague published Beyond Top Secret You, his wartime autobiography which gave further details of mincemeat, among other operations. In 2010, the journalist Ben McIntyre published Operation Mincemeat, A History of the Events. In 2014, a BBC television miniseries, Fleming, The Man Who Would Be Bond, dramatized some aspects of Operation Mincemeat and Fleming's connection to the operation. The full effect of Operation Mincemeat is not known, but Sicily was liberated more quickly than anticipated and losses were lower than predicted. The events were depicted in Operation Heartbreak, a 1950 novel by the former cabinet minister Duff Cooper. We hope you enjoyed this World War II story, Operation Mincemeat at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We always enjoy reviews. And it's been quite a while since we've read Spotify comments, so I had a few I wanted to share with you today. This one, for how Pancake Day, Mardi Gras, and Chocolate Easter Bunnies came to be. This Spotify comment from Becky. Very informative. I'm a Christian, and I learned many new facts. Thanks for making this clear. You're very welcome, Becky. You had fun doing that one. And this one, for the Ghosts of the Alamo, from Becky. Being from Texas, I love the respect you gave to the Alamo segments. I listen and live all your podcasts, and I'm pleased to be supported as a Patreon member. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Becky. Appreciate that very much. This one is also Ghosts of the Alamo. This one, part one. From Beartooth Cruth. What a great episode. A little less known historical fact is that nine of the men were all Freemason brethren, including Boone, Crockett, and Bowie. Thank you, Beartooth Cruz. And this one, same podcast, Jim Hand. Excellent programming, thoroughly researched and thought-provoking. That one from Jim Hand. Thank you, Jim. And this one for Operation Market Garden. This one from Gunshot Iguana. Absolutely tremendous. I love the old recordings, given these episodes truth and validity. Now that Lord Carrington has passed, I think his record should be tarnished and his medals pulled. Thank you, Gunshot Iguana. I appreciate that very much. Appreciate your listening. And this one for Reincarnation and Karma, an interview at the Casey Institute. This one from Kerry Chuck Hodgkin. Such a unique peek into history. Thank you, Kerry Chuck Hodgkin. Appreciate it. We always appreciate our Spotify comments, and we appreciate reviews. We received this one recently from Apple. 
Enjoyable podcast, five stars, 1,001 heroes. Well done podcast, educational and entertaining. That one from Unnamed Source, Apple Podcast U.S. This came in for 1,001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. There was a marker up on that that Apple had put up, said it was unable to play episodes due to explicit content restriction. That was an Apple mistake. They have been contacted, and that's been corrected. So there is no explicit contact restriction at 1,001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. That one kind of shocked me, because there's never been any explicit contact over there. Those are just good, solid, classic short stories, which I enjoy sharing very much. Thank you all so much for joining us for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We also appreciate our Patreon supporters who, for about the cost of a blended cup of coffee, keep us going each month to help pay our expenses at the podcast. We appreciate their support very much. Keep your eyes open for this week's 1001 Heroes Best Of, which should appear very early Friday morning, usually right after midnight Thursday. And until our next episode, everyone, stay safe. And we'll be back soon.